from the book of Hebrews this morning, Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 16 through 18 this morning, so we'll finish out chapter 2 of Hebrews. I've titled this message, Why the Incarnation. I want to forewarn you this morning before we get in that I will probably say some things this morning that you may not agree with. It may go against uh, things that you've been taught your entire life. Um, and that's okay. Uh, I just want you to know that I have an open door policy. So if if I say something and you think, well, that doesn't sound like what I was always taught or, or whatever, and you want to talk about it, then um, you can come into my office and we can sit down and we can have a chat and talk about it. Just know that I will defend everything that I believe according to Scripture. So not according to feeling. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 16 through 18 this morning is where we're at. I'm going to read that from the English Standard Version this morning. Hebrews 2, 16 through 18. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiations for the sins of the people. For because he himself hath suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Why would God become a man? That is the question, and the simple answer is that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ to redeem God's people. God is our creator, and he therefore has ownership over us, he gave us a perfect moral standard, and we all have fallen short of that perfect standard. God is perfect, and since he is perfect, he must punish all those who fall short of his perfect standard. And since our sinfulness goes against his infinite holiness, the punishment must therefore be infinite. So the problem is, we suffer the punishment or a substitute must take our place. And for a substitute to take our place, that substitute must truly be truly human, to be a substitute for humanity, and must be truly divine to endure the infinite wrath of God that will be poured out on them. Jesus was truly human and truly divine. And therefore, the only one able to be our substitute. So why would God become a man to redeem his people from their sin? Now, if I asked people what they needed most in life, we would get a variety of answers. Some might say that what they need most in life is a house, or what they need most in life right now is a car, or what they need most in life... Perhaps they would say food. And the reason that we say these things, the reason that, that we say what we need most is because it is a felt need. It's what's most pressing on us 
at that moment. And so whatever that felt need is, whatever it is that is consistently before us is what we feel like we need most in life. Rarely will someone say if we were to just go out on the streets and do a poll, rarely would someone say what they need most in life is to is for God to forgive their sin and give them eternal life. Why? Because we don't think as people, we don't think in light of eternity. We think about the here and now. We think about what we currently need, what I need at the moment, and yet the greatest need the world has is to experience the forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Remember I read for you last week, if you were here, from uh, a catechism, and I asked the question, the catechism asked this question, what is the chief end of man? The answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is the greatest need that we would know. God God uh, gives forgiveness and we need to bring him glory. Listen, the church is great at meeting perceived needs of people. In fact, we do it all the time. We, we help people out. We feed people. We buy stuff for people. We meet perceived needs. That's what we do as a church. And I'm not downplaying those needs, but often we meet perceived needs of people while neglecting the greatest need of all. You see, we could we could meet perceived needs and that person will die and spend eternity in hell, or we can meet spiritual needs. I believe for some reason Christianity in general has bought into the lie that unless we have something to offer people by meeting a physical need, then they're not going to listen to the gospel. Now, I'm not sure why we bought into that lie that has elevated the physical above the spiritual. That has said, well, the physical is more important than the spiritual. I don't know why we've done that. But what we need to understand as Christians is the gospel is the most important thing that you possess. You don't possess anything more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with helping other people and nothing wrong with acts of kindness or doing charity, but they cannot be confused with preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, we can go to Haiti. I've been to Haiti several times, and I can feed people rice, and that may that may uh, help them from dying of hunger, or we can help people medically, and that may help them from dying from a common disease, and we can build a house, and it may make them comfortable while they're here on the earth, but only the gospel of Jesus Christ can save a soul from an eternity in hell. Our focus must be on the gospel. And then the social concern will be a natural outflow from that. This relates to our passage of scripture today. Many will read the scripture that we just read, or any scripture for that matter, and will say, well, that doesn't help me. I need a, I need a better paying job. Or I have some sort of personal issue that I need help with. In other words, I have something that's more pressing. Because we live in the moment. And we can't see past the moment. And so these, so we say, well these verses don't really relate to me. But they do. Because the greatest need that anyone has is to be reconciled to God. And verse 16 tells us. 
that we can be reconciled. It, it helps. It says, uh, verse 16 tells us that Jesus helps us. Verse 17 shows us how it is that Jesus is our high priest and how he reconciles us to God. And verse 18 shows us how it is that Jesus comes to our aid when we are tempted. These verses are for us because if you don't know Christ, then your greatest need is to be reconciled to God through the high priest, Jesus Christ. And if you do know Christ, then you need to live a life of victory over the power of sin. And that is precisely what we find in these verses. How it is that you can live a life of victory over the power of sin. In chapter 1, the author of Hebrews wrote to those who were tempted to leave Christ and go back to Judaism. He showed them how Jesus is God's final word to us. He is the Son of God. He is the radiance of the, of the glory of God. He is the exact representation of the nature of God. Everything on earth is upheld by the word of his power. Furthermore, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is superior to the angels because he created the angels. He then gives a warning in chapter 2. Don't drift away from your salvation. He then shows that Jesus is the eternal Son of God and that He is truly man and He is truly God. God's original intent was for man to rule over the earth, but man messed up in the fall and made a mistake. However, through the incarnation and death for our sins, Jesus Christ paid the price. He recovered what man had lost. And as the founder of our salvation, Jesus became a man so that we could be sanctified. And he calls us brothers. And, and now the text continues to speak about the humanity of Christ. And the author then makes it clear that as, as to why it is that we have the incarnation of Christ in the first place. So why did Jesus become a man? Why do we have the incarnation? We have the incarnation so that Jesus could be our high priest, offer himself as a perfect sacrifice for our sin, and come to our help when we are tempted. So we're going to break this, these verses down. The first part is this. The incarnation happened to save men. The incarnation happened to save men. Jesus became a man to save men, or we just, could just say to save people. Now look at verse 16. It is a continuation of an argument that the author started back in verse 5. God put man on earth in order to rule, and, and the role of the angels was to serve man. Verse 16 starts off with this word for, relating it back to the previous two verses which speaks about Jesus freeing us from the power and the fear of death. Now, in the English Standard Version, it, it says that Jesus helps. If you have a King James Version, it says that he took. In the Greek, it literally means to take hold of. Interestingly enough, it is, it is the same word used when Jesus takes hold of Peter when he's sinking in the water. And it's the same word used in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, when Paul writes of taking hold of eternal life. I believe there's a beautiful picture given for us here. That is, not only does Jesus take hold of the human nature by becoming a man, but there's also this picture of him taking hold of our hand, just like he did Peter when he was sinking in the sea. He grabs a hold of us. He, he delivers us from the bondage of the flesh and human nature. He didn't become an angel to save angels. He didn't become an angel to take an angel by the hand and lead them. But he became a man to save men. And now I want to be 
clear that some people want to argue that verse 16 is speaking only of the incarnation of Christ and, and others say no it is speaking of the purpose of the incarnation that Jesus became a man and shown us why he became a man that he became a man to help whereas I believe it's speaking of both especially when we consider the connection to the rest of the verses here's the beauty of these verses Jesus is God in the flesh, superior to the angels, became a man to suffer and die for our salvation. And he doesn't do this for angels, but he does this for the offspring of Abraham, which we'll get to in just a moment. Which is to say, he does this in fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that through the seed of Abraham, all people would be blessed. So you don't look to Jesus as an angel. You understand that he's a man and he had to suffer and die to atone for the sins of his children. Now, one more thing real quick that we see in these verses. And trust me, I could probably preach a whole sermon on verse 16, but I won't. What I want us to see here is that verse 16 is a refutation of those who would deny the biblical doctrine of God's sovereign election. Those who argue against election will make this claim. If God does not choose everyone on the face of the earth, then he is unloving and he is unjust. And there are many folks, even Southern Baptists in the Southern Baptist Convention, which we are a part of, that want to deny this doctrine. The problem is, if they are wrong in saying that God is unjust, if if this doctrine is true, if they are wrong about that, then they're guilty of blasphemy because they're calling God unloving and unjust. Here's the problem. They are wrong because the doctrine of election is true and very much biblical. It is plain from Scripture that it is true, and it is plain from history that it is true. God has not made salvation equally available to all people at all times in all places. There is no possible way that we could say that. And as we see from verse 16 that he chose Abraham way back in the book of Genesis. So when people say that God is unjust and unloving to choose someone over another, let me paint this picture for you. God created Adam and Eve. They were placed in the garden and told not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Adam was created with the ability to choose good or evil. And he was our representative. God told Adam, the day he eats of the tree, he will surely die. So what happens? His wife, Eve, got to blame the woman. She ate of the tree, right? She gave it to Adam. Did they physically die that day? No. They didn't physically. They spiritually died. They did not physically die. What happened instead? Instead, God put clothing on them and he promised a Messiah that would come and crush the head of Satan. Boy, that sure sounds unloving, doesn't it? 
God said the day you eat of this tree, you're going to die. They eat of the tree, they don't die. Sounds like mercy to me. Now as we read along in the scripture, we find that, that their children, Cain and Abel. And Cain murders Abel. And as we continue to read, we find Adam and Eve. And they have another son, right? And they they name that son Seth, who is in the lineage of Noah. And by the time we get to Noah, the earth is so filled with wickedness that God destroys the entire earth, choosing to only spare Noah and his sons and their wives. Everyone else is rejected. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Through the lineage of Shem, we come to Abraham. Listen, by this time, there are many people on the earth, but God didn't choose anyone else in any other place on the entire earth. He chose Abraham. He then later chose the descendants of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. Not because they deserve to be chosen, but because this is what God simply chose to do. This means that God, by choosing Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, also rejected Ishmael, Esau, and their descendants. You see, folks, the scripture is clear. Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not that because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. You see, when we look at Scripture... We see that general revelation, which is revelation that we witness by creation. So we can look at creation and see that there's a God. Scripture makes it clear that general revelation is not sufficient for salvation, but only serves to condemn mankind. And as far as Scripture reveals to us, this is all anyone had before Christ was general revelation. God allowed nations to do what they wanted, but never revealed to, cho- to, to those nations about the Savior that's to come. Who did he reveal it to? Abraham and his descendants. The only people that are God's children are those that are born again. And he treats all of his children alike. Then, then they all have the hope of heaven. They all uh, know that one day they'll spend eternity in heaven. God doesn't send any of his children to hell. However, not all people are God's children. But to as many as received them, to them he gave the right to be called children of God. We are born rebellious subjects to God. We're not born as children of God. That would, that would deny original sin. We're born as rebellious subjects. God does not send his children to hell, but he does send rebellious subjects to hell who are not his children. You say, well, that didn't seem fair. What's not fair is that anyone gets to go to heaven. That's what's not fair. Because I deserve hell. I don't deserve to go to heaven. Furthermore, Look at what the text says. It makes it clear that the incarnation was not for the salvation of angels. In fact, salvation is not even offered to angels. God could have easily offered some sort of plan to save angels, but he doesn't do it. 
Why? I mean, all these angels rebelled with Satan, a third of the angels, but in his sovereignty, he chooses not to save any of them. Angels are a creation of God. They are his creation. Do we see that the angels are, are saying to God, well, God, you are unloving to not allow uh, the salvation of angels. Can fallen angels tell God that he is unjust because he did not give them a way out of, of their condemnation? Can they do that? No. The created has no power over the creator. We are rebellious and sinful men that deserve only to be damned for our sin. We can't make any claim that God is unjust or unloving. If God so chooses to save anyone, it's because of his mercy. And he has a right to do as he pleases with his creatures. He is the potter. We are the clay. He makes some vessels as vessels of mercy. And he makes some vessels as vessels of wrath. Prepared for destruction. And he does as he pleases. And we are not even free to challenge him. According to Romans chapter 9. God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. He will harden whom he hardens. And to reject God's sovereign election is not just weak theology, but it's a refusal to submit to God's complete sovereign rule over all of creation. He rules the entirety of creation, including the salvation of men and women, boys and girls. Okay, I have to move on from that point. That's why the incarnation happened, to save men, specifically to save God's own children. Point number two, the incarnation happened so that Jesus could be our high priest. The incarnation happened so that Jesus could be our high priest. In verse 17, we read that Jesus became our high priest. I believe verse 17 actually uh, gives to us three specific points that we would do well to notice um, about Jesus being our high priest or about the incarnation. The first of those is this. The incarnation was for a specific purpose. As we look at verse 17, it states this, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Now, did you notice it says had to? In the Greek, those words uh, had to are to be necessary. Which is to, which is, uh, what does that mean? Well, this is what it says. To be unavoidably determined by prior circumstances, sometimes understood with contingency. So what is necessary? What is unavoidably determined? Well, the rest of the verse tells us. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. Why? To make propitiation for the sins of people. So let's break that down. The specific purpose of the incarnation was that it was unavoidable that Jesus become our merciful and faithful high priest to make the propitiation for the sins of the people. And the result of that is seen in verse 18. Because he has done this, because he came as truly man, which included including, uh, facing temptations, he's able to help those who are tempted. Now, did you notice that verse 17 also says, in every respect, he had to be made like his brothers. Some translations say, in all things, he had to be made like his brothers. 
The point is that this refutes the heresy that says that Jesus only seemed to be human or only appeared to be human. No, he was truly human. He had a complete humanity. He had a, he had a human nature that was without sin. In his humanity, he, he did things that humans do. He ate. He slept. He, um, he had human emotions. He experienced human limitations. He was not omnipresent anyway. He was truly human. I don't know if, if he ever got sick or not, but he was human. The incarnation was for a specific purpose. Secondly, as our high priest, Jesus is merciful and faithful. Did you see that? It says he's a merciful and faithful high priest. Let me be real. We need mercy. In fact, mercy is our only hope of ever living with God. Unless God loves man enough to pour out his mercy on him, every single one of us is doomed. Hebrews is the only book of the Bible to mention that Jesus is our high priest. This is something that we as individuals and as a church need to grasp a hold of. It's hard for us to understand the idea of Jesus being our high priest because we we have not grown up under the Jewish sacrificial system. The Jews had no way approaching of approaching God directly. They they had to come to God through the priests, and the priests would then offer their sacrifice on their behalf. So the priests acted as their representative to God. So once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would represent the entire nation of Israel by entering into the Holy of Holies and would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. If anyone else entered the Holy of Holies, or if the high priest entered on any other occasion, it was instant death. And so the role of the high priest was an essential role to the nation of Israel as he represented them and made the offering for their cleansing of sin every year. Now, stop and think about that uh, for just a minute. Every time you sinned, you would have to bring a sacrifice to the priest so that the priest could offer that sacrifice on your behalf for your sin. Now, I just picture this. I don't think that there was any hiding what you were doing. Hey, look, there goes Josh again. That's the fifth time this week. He keeps bringing a sacrifice. It's like every day he goes up there to bring that sacrifice. You think he would learn to stop sinning. I mean, how much sinning can this guy do? And that's the way it was. Everybody knew what you were doing. And the beauty is that Jesus offered his blood once and for all. We no longer have to go and keep on offering sacrifices over and over again. Can you imagine a Jew coming to faith in Jesus and then understanding that the old sacrificial system is done away with and they don't have to keep Going and offering a sacrifice. Jesus is the permanent high priest. He is the final high priest. He offered himself for all our sin. And we no longer have to go through the priest. We go through Jesus Christ. Now Jesus is not just some high priest that's kind of out of touch. That doesn't care because the author describes him as merciful high priest. Why did he go to the cross? So that 
we might experience the mercy. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ went to the cross to show us mercy so that we would know his compassion. We should never fear being rejected by him. We should never have a fear that Jesus won't understand what we're going through or the sin that we're struggling with, uh, that he wouldn't understand that because he paid for that sin. Sin was placed on him. Sometimes we do this illustration where um, we nail our sins to the cross. And I did that as, as a youth pastor when I was kind of young and I thought it was like all cool. Like uh, I built this cross and I remember having kids come up there. We nailed our sin to the cross. And I thought, man, that was, that was a powerful. I was really proud of myself. That was a powerful illustration right there. Technically, that is incorrect. Because our sin wasn't placed on the cross. It was placed on Jesus. And yes, he will discipline like a loving father. But it's always for our good. He is never harsh and he never lacks compassion. He is merciful. By the way, mercy, it's, it's kind of hard to describe, but it's not just an emotion. It's an action. We move to alleviate someone else's pain. And so if someone is, is hurting and I see that person hurting and I do nothing to alleviate their pain, then I'm unmerciful. Jesus was moved to compassion when he fed the hungry and he healed the sick and he met needs. This was mercy and compassion. John Calvin said that our high priest had to be merciful to help the miserable raise up the fallen and relieve the oppressed. Jesus was also faithful. There's a contrast. We see that Jesus is merciful in his relationship to his people and he's faithful in his relationship with God the Father. Meaning that he's obedient in all things, culminating in his perfect obedience by going to the cross. As one commentary puts it this way, our hell he made his, that his heaven might be ours. That's faithfulness. When someone is faithful, you can trust them, right? You know you can count on them because they're faithful. And it's the same with Jesus. He's faithful in that he is at the right hand of God as our mediator. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. The character of Jesus is he is merciful and he is faithful and he invites us to draw near to him and cast our burdens on him and to know that he will show us mercy and that he is faithful in his duty. Finally, I want us to notice the third point from this verse about Jesus being our high priest, and that's this. Jesus, Jesus satisfied God's wrath for our sins. Jesus satisfied God's wrath for our sins. We have the incarnation so that Jesus would make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, if you have an NIV, it says atonement. If you have a KJV, it says reconciliation. If you have an RSV, it says expiation. Now the words atonement and expiation and even reconciliation are words that emphasize the cancellation of sin. However, that is not what propitiation emphasizes. The word propitiate is a focus of, of putting away the divine wrath of God. 
And that is what the verse is emphasizing, that Jesus fully met and put away the wrath of God. You see, when, when we sin, we arouse the wrath of God. Romans chapter 1 verse 18. And we become enemies of God. Romans chapter 5 verse 10. And God's holy nature to mind demands wrath against all sin. And he, and he can't set aside His wrath for our sin and remain holy at the same time. He can't be like, oh well, I see that person since I'm just going to set that aside. That, that means He's not holy. This is where propitiation comes in. John Owen said that there are four elements to the propitiation. There's an offense or crime to be taken away, a person offended to be pacified or reconciled, a person offending to be pardoned, and a sacrifice of other means of making atonement. Now, no one ever wants to talk about God's wrath, it seems like. In fact, I can remember once when I was uh, doing some street evangelism in Pennsylvania, and a guy um, said, now make sure that you don't mention hell when you talk to people on the street. I was, I was like, what's the point? Churches don't preach about God's wrath. We pretend like it's not even real. Some say, well, God's love and mercy... That's what we want to talk about. We never want to talk about His wrath. And some even say His wrath can't be a real thing. Yet at least 585 times His wrath is mentioned in the Old Testament. And over 30 times His wrath is spoken of in the New Testament. The Gospel of John says the wrath of God abides on those who do not obey the Son. Paul spoke about God's wrath 10 times in the book of Romans alone. The book of Revelation is filled with all kinds of imagery of the wrath of God. God's wrath is not that He is up in heaven all angry, but instead is active and it reveals His hatred for everything that is evil and it comes from His holy nature. The Bible clearly tells us that God not only hates sin, but He even hates Sinners, Psalm 5.5, 5, Psalm 11.5 makes it clear. We hear people misquote Scripture all the time saying, well, God, God hates a sin but loves a sinner. But that's not true. That's not what Scripture teaches. When sin is a part of who we are, we can't even enter into the presence of a holy God. Now we are to love our enemies, what Scripture tells us. Jude chapter 23, though, tells us that we are to hate evil. And we're told that if we love the Lord, we're commanded to hate evil in Psalm 97. Part of our struggle with sin in the first place for almost everybody is that we don't hate it. We don't hate sin. You know that, that sin that you struggle with? You probably have a sin or two that you struggle with and you get frustrated with. You know, you're like, why do I do that? Why do I keep doing that? You know, maybe it's gossip or maybe someone in here is struggling with pornography or who knows what that sin is that you just keep returning to that sin over and over and over again. I can tell you what your problem is. You want me to tell you what the problem is? You don't hate it. You love it. You love how it makes you feel. You love the, the, what it does to you inside. You love your sin more than you love your Christ. And you say, well, that's hard to hear, Pastor. It is hard to hear. I preach that to myself all the time. Why did I do that? Well, because I loved it. It felt good. That's why I did it. We love it. We don't truly hate it. 
For us to truly understand propitiation, we must understand that God's wrath against all sin can't be diminished. We can't go around trying to make his wrath small. We don't like it. It doesn't sound nice. But God hates sin. And if we diminish his wrath against sin, then we also diminish his love for his people. You know how? Because what was required by God's holy justice, by his wrath, his mercy and love supplied. While we were still sinners. While the wrath of God still abided on you, Christ died for us. Christ saved us in a way that keeps God's holiness intact. That is the beauty of propitiation. That Christ, our high priest, has loved us so much that we're not under God's wrath, nor will we ever be as his children because Christ, our priest, has completely satisfied God's wrath for our sins. We have the incarnation so that Jesus could be our high priest and offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins to satisfy the wrath of God, which leads to the third and final point this morning. We have the incarnation so that Jesus can come to our help when we are tempted. Because Jesus was truly man, he was tempted. And even though he was tempted fully like we are tempted, he was not tempted in the same sense in which we are tempted. Our temptation often stems from our own sinful nature. And Jesus doesn't have a sin nature. Jesus was tempted like Adam and Eve were tempted before sin ever entered the world. Now, one of the things that drives me nuts about our society is that we act like you have to experience something to know whether it's good or bad. Like you can't say something is bad if you haven't experienced it. And so if, if, if I say, for example, uh, a book is heretical, someone will say, well, have you read it? And I can say, well, I don't have to read it. I know what it's about. I know it's heretical. I don't need to read it. Just like I don't have to experience cocaine to know I shouldn't do it. Okay, it's, it's that easy. Likewise, it would be a mistake to think that because Jesus never fell into sin, that he does not understand the depths of our temptation or our sin. Let me ask you something this morning. If you have a chain and a link breaks in that chain and you re repair that chain, which is stronger? The chain, a chain that never broke or the chain that you had to repair? Well, the chain that never broke broke is a stronger chain. That chain is Jesus. He went through the temptation and never sinned. He faced the temptation when he was led into the desert by Satan and was tempted to leave his call behind. Later on, his own family tries to 
tries to uh, 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 keep him from doing what he was supposed to do when they said uh, to him, he must be out of his mind. Then one of his own disciples, Peter, rebuked Jesus for saying that he had to go to the cross. Then in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus cried out, if it was possible to take this cup from him, yet not my will, Father, but your will be done. Then on the cross, he could have called down legions of angels to rescue him. He faced the ultimate temptation. Jesus was tempted. Jesus knows the full weight of temptation in a way that we will never know. Because he was tempted and never gave in. What good would it be if he faced temptation and failed? Jesus never failed. Temptation has, has defeated us time and time again. But he is the victor over temptation. The Hebrew church was being tempted to be unfaithful, to give up their calling. What an encouragement to know that Jesus, our high priest, knew temptation. To know that he suffered more than we will ever suffer. To know that he endured more than we will ever endure. And yet he was victorious. Listen, Christian, God's word is still true because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's great news to know that he's able to help. Imagine as parents when you hear your child cry out, Help me! When my child is in real danger, when I can tell that there's something really wrong, I drop everything and run to their aid. Notice I said real danger. It's the key. Sometimes my, my kids like to cry help me when they don't need help. And then sometimes you gotta go run and get the camera and take their picture because they stuck their head through something or you know, something like that. But when the danger is real, we go running. That's the picture here. We cry out in the midst of our temptation and Jesus comes to our help. We cry out, Lord, help me. And He comes running. I have found so often when we are faced with temptation, here is the problem. Here is why we give in so often to sin. We are faced with the temptation to fall into sin and instead of crying out, Lord, help me, we do nothing. We just go headlong into sin. We don't cry out until after the sin is complete. And then after we do the sin, then we cry out, Lord, help me. I don't want to face the consequences of my sin. Isn't that how it works a lot of times? I mean, sin is, that temptation is so enticing. Some guy has a younger lady checking him out, right? And Oh, well, I feel more macho now. That's the way it works. And then you start thinking thoughts in your mind, and then an opportunity presents itself, and then you act on No time in that do you cry out, Lord, help me! There's temptation! Help me overcome that! Instead, we march headlong into that sin. And then after we fail and we 
ruin our family and we ruin our life, then suddenly we're crying out, God, help me now. Help me fix this. Help me put my family back together. Help me do things right next time. Lord, help me now. If only we'd cry out when we're faced with the temptation. Because He would come to our help. It means that you have a responsibility to cry out to Him when you're faced with temptation. If necessary, flee from it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. But you can't endure it alone. You will fail every time. So, why the incarnation? So that Jesus, as our high priest, could offer himself as the perfect sacrifice for our sin and come to our help when we are tempted. I hope you understand that our greatest need is to be reconciled to a holy God this morning. I would ask you this morning, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, He is your propitiation if you've done so. He is the one who paid the penalty that you deserve. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, then the wrath of God abides on you. And you are not His child. And I pray that you would not rest until you place your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your high priest, I'd ask you this morning that that would change. I pray that today you would come to know Christ as your Savior. And if you do, if you do know Him, you say, well, well, I know Jesus as my Savior. He is my High priest, and I'd ask you this, are you crying out to him for help when you're faced with temptation? Are you instead running headlong into the temptation and waiting until you have already sinned, and then you cry out after it's all said and done? Do you understand, Christian, that Christ consistently delivers us from sin and that deliverance can be ours if we only cry out to Him. He is our high priest who's full of mercy and He is faithful and He satisfied the wrath of God and He comes running to your aid when you are tempted. Just cry out. Just cry out to Him and He will come to your help. So this morning I just challenge you with those thoughts. Are you crying out to Him? Are you crying out to Him? Even in that menial little sin, you know, that one where you hear the conviction of the Holy Spirit say, hey, I want you to share the gospel. What's the temptation? No, I don't want to do it. Cry out. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. 
tempted not to do this. Help me. Wherever the sin, cry out for his help and he comes to your aid. And this morning, if you don't know him, I pray that you place your faith in him so that he will be the propitiation for your sin, that he satisfies the wrath of God for you. We're going to sing a song. I'm going to be standing down front. If you feel like you need to respond to this message this morning, I'll give you that opportunity. If you just need to pray in your pew, you, you can do that. If you need to pray and say, Lord, help me. Help me to call out to you when I'm facing temptation. If you need to talk afterwards, then, then that's available as well. But if, if you want to respond, I want to give you the opportunity to respond to this message this morning. Let's go ahead and, and close with a time of prayer. Father,